Well, I invite you, if you'd like, to turn to uh, 2 Samuel. We're going to do a one-off uh, look at 2 Samuel here, particularly David's mighty men. We're looking at 2 Samuel 23, uh, verses 13 down through uh, 17. Before we uh, read the passage and look at it, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you give us uh, your word, that you lead us and guide us by it, that you teach us the most important things that there are to know about life in this world in it. And we ask that you would indeed instruct us, make us more like your son, grant us salvation if we are lost, and do all these things for your own glory. We pray for your son's sake. Amen. 2 Samuel 23 at verse 13. And three of the 30 chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried it and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives. This morning, so beloved congregation of hope and everyone with us here uh, this morning in Luke 24, two of Jesus' disciples were on the road to Emmaus and Jesus was walking among them and they talked as if things which happened to Jesus were new and odd, something completely unpredicted. And when they had it finished explaining the crucifixion and the resurrection and their confusion and discouragement, Jesus said to them in Luke 24, 25, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Jesus is giving us a big hermeneutic, a, a key interpretive principle regarding the Old Testament, really all of scripture that has to do with him. And so when we come to 2 Samuel 23, indeed we'll notice there are a lot of things that have to do with us as new covenant believers. But one of the glories of walking through the Old Testament is that we get to see the Lord Jesus Christ and all of his glory. We're actually going to end the sermon there with him. But I want us to understand what we're doing. We're not just going to the Old Testament to moralize uh, and to say, oh, we should be like these mighty men or we should be like King David. We should not be like them, whatever the case may be. That's a really hard thing to discern a lot of times. But indeed, we see Christ and in seeing him, we'll also see ourselves, Lord willing. This passage is reduplicated in 1 Chronicles 11, 15 through 19, almost identical uh, language. And one thing about this passage set in the context of David's mighty men is that these men are noted for their devotion to him. We'll highlight that in a minute uh, as we get into the sermon. But they're, they're, uh, what sets them apart is their love for David and their devotion to David. And I want us to see just three things. The theme, God is glorified when we serve in love rather than mere duty. And I want us to see the longing of David's heart, the mighty men's conquest, and then finally, the mighty one who conquered out of love. So first, the longing of David's heart in verses 13 through 15. Before we get there, just a little background information. The episode here conveyed probably took place, scholars don't know for sure, but probably took place in 2 Samuel 5, 
verses 17 through 25. David had been anointed king of all Israel. For the previous seven and a half years, he'd been king over Judah. But now all the elders of Israel came together and anointed him over Israel as well. And immediately after David was enthroned king of all Israel, the Philistines caught wind of it, and they went in search of David. And as soon as David heard of this, he fled to the cave of Adullam, uh, west of Bethlehem, about five to ten miles. So as David was hiding in the cave, the Philistines were encamped in the valley of Rephaim, which was northeast of the cave of Adullam, about five to ten miles. A garrison of Philistines was at Bethlehem during harvest time, and if they were not out to rob the Israelites of an abundant crop, they were certainly trying to dethrone David. So Israelite power had become centralized as usual during harvest time. And the Philistines understood this. The best time to raid a country is you go there during harvest. You can steal their harvest and ruin their entire economy and likely David's reign. So while he was in the stronghold at the cave of Adullam, he had an intense longing for some water out of the well at Bethlehem. He just said, oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Now, what's interesting is there was plenty of water in the cave of Adullam. David had actually spent many months there. What David is longing for here is not just some H2O. He could have found that anywhere else. He could have gone anywhere else to get it. He didn't have to go into Philistine territory to find water. So what is David longing for? David longed for this struggle with the Philistines to be over. David longed, remember he's anointed king of Israel, but he's living in a cave. He's not in Jerusalem. He's not in his own city, Bethlehem. He's in a cave. He's living like a fugitive. He's living like someone who's on the run. This is not an enjoyable time for David. And he wishes that he had the ability to just go into Bethlehem and drink at the well. Just, I wish, I wish things were at peace. I wish there was a sense of normalcy. I wish I was sleeping in my own bed and at home, as it were. The word longing that he that is used here is actually the word which connotes um, uh, craving or hungering. It's the same word used in Numbers 11.4 of the Israelites when they strongly desired meat to eat. Now that craving was sinful. David's longing here isn't sinful, but it's a longing that has some intensity to it. And one commentator said, in expressing a wish for a drink from the well at Bethlehem, David was longing for normality, peace, and home. And all of us as believers can understand this longing for that as well, right? Each of us has been anointed. We are prophets, priests, and kings, right? Small p, small k, small p. We're not the prophet, priest, or king, Jesus. We've all been anointed, and we're all seated and reigning with Christ in the heavenlies, right? That's where we are, Paul says in Ephesians 2. We are reigning with him. We are anointed by God, by the Holy Spirit. But if you look at our lives, you wouldn't say, oh, these people are living the life of a king. Everything's going peachy keen. Everything's perfect all the time. There is no difficulty. There's no suffering. There's no trials. There's no hurdles to overcome. Actually, if you look at us, it looks like we're pilgrims like David was, doesn't it? That's how our lives look. Because we're away from home. While we're in this body, in this world, we are not home. Adam and Eve had a home one time with God in the Garden of Eden. Ever since they were kicked out of that, everywhere they were and everywhere human beings are in this world is called not home, not the place that we were designed to be. One day we will get there in heaven, but right now we each of us, if we look inside, will notice that we have an intense longing to be any place other than this world, or we try and make this world our home, but it never satisfies. 
Adoniram Judson is one believer who was made to feel keenly the reality that we are not yet home in this life. He was uh, he entered into Burma in July of 1813. He spent 38 years of his life in Burma, having gone back to New England only once in 38 years. He married Anne. They had three children, and every one of those children died uh, right after death, or very nearly after death. And after the death of their second child, his wife Anne wrote, Our hearts were bound up with this child. We felt he was our earthly all, our only source of innocent recreation in this heathen land. But God saw it necessary to remove us of our error and to strip us of our only little all. Then Anne died, and their third child died six months later. So he lived in deep depression after this, right? Four of his very deep loved ones passed away, and eight years later he married Sarah. They had eight children, three of whom never made it past childhood. Sarah fell so sick that they set sail for America in the hopes of healing her, they left behind their three youngest children, one of whom died before he could return back to Burma, and Sarah died on the way back to the U.S. And then uh, the ship dropped anchor, and at St. Helena, long enough to dig a grave and bury uh, her, uh, his, his wife. He married a third time. Her name was Emily. They had one child. They were married four years, but this time he's the one who died. And in order to keep him alive, they actually took a trip, a voyage, to try and get him some help and uh, he was vomiting terribly, tremendously miserable, and he, he actually said how few there are who die so hard. And at 4.15 on a Friday afternoon, April 12, 1850, Adoniram Judson died at sea, away from all his family in the Burmese church. And that evening, the ship hove to, and quote, the crew assembled quietly, the starboard port was opened, there were no prayers, the captain gave the order, the coffin slid through the port into the night, the location was latitude 13 degrees north, longitude 93 degrees east. And 10 days later, his wife Emily gave birth to their second child, who died at birth. And she learned four months later that her husband had died. Adoniram Judson and a lot of his family members around him were constantly reminded that they weren't home, that they weren't there yet, that there's a place they want to be. And indeed, it's good to long to be home with our family and friends, that's not what the passage is saying or what I'm trying to say either. But indeed, that's not our true home. Our true home is in heaven. And while we're on this earth, we will notice that everywhere here is not yet home. Now, I want to highlight just two things. Longing for home will do two things. Number one, it will leave you disappointed with your current home. No matter if we long for our true home in heaven, it will leave us disappointed with everywhere we are in this world. Hopefully not discontent. I don't mean disappointed in a sinful sense. I mean like a holy discontent, like, Lord, thank you for the gifts you've given to me. Thank you for the wonderful family and friends that you've placed me in. Thank you for the church family you've given me. Thank you for the way you have blessed me as a believer. I can't wait to get to heaven. <laughs> this is great, okay? This is good, but heaven's gonna be perfect. And so as we long for our true home, we will more and more understand that our true home is not here. And longing for our true home will also show that we were made for another planet. Longing for home will point us to the greater home, which Jesus has said he's gone to prepare for us, the room in the Father's mansion. So as we long for normalcy, as we long for peace, as we long for home, as David's longing to just have a normal life and get back to the waters in Bethlehem, so too we will realize that we're made for another planet. C.S. Lewis said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And Mark McMinn, 
who's a, I think he was a professor at Wheaton. I can't, I don't know if he's at Fox College now. He's a Christian psychologist. In his book, Finding Our Way Home, he wrote this, longing for home is good, a winsome reflection of the way we are created. God is tugging at our hearts, inviting us back to the security of divine love. Intuitively, we know we are crafted by God for something beautiful and we yearn for it. But this longing is simultaneously sad, reminding us that life in this world is not always as tidy as we wish. Spiritual writers have often referred to life as a pilgrimage, a journey in which we mature through toil and struggle, all the time yearning for another day. This is the great paradox of yearning. It reveals both our noblest desires of wanting to be in heaven and our greatest burdens we have to undergo before we get there. So that's David's longing as he sits there in a cave, the anointed king on the run, not on his throne, not even in his own town of Bethlehem. Well, next I want us to notice the mighty men who conquered, or the mighty men uh, who went on their conquest, verse 16. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. So the gate of Bethlehem was at the top of a hill. There was a garrison there, we're told, of Philistines, which means, it's hard to know, I, I guess a garrison is not a definitive amount of people. But let's say 20 to 25 is where a lot of people estimate the amount of Philistines to be in a garrison. So these three men fought their way through the garrison, and we don't have a big image of it at all, but they fought their way through it. Maybe two were fighting, and one was taking the water skin and running down the well while the other two were fighting off these 20 men. And they brought the water skin up, closed it, and they fought their way back out, and they went all the way back to David at his cave. Now, these men are very loyal because, remember, it's harvest time. You're likely harvesting. So they left that harvest. They came to be with David while he was on the run. Again, tremendous devotion and love toward David. What is so interesting about this episode of the mighty men in verses 13 through 17 is that we're not told how many Philistines they killed. We're not even told that they killed any, if you notice that. They just broke through it. Likely they killed some, but they broke through the garrison, they got the water, and they came back to David. In the stories of the other mighty men, there are details about their military might in this very chapter. So 2 Samuel 23, 8, Josheb Bas Hebeth killed 800 men at one time with his spear. Verse 10, Eliezer single-handedly struck down the Philistines when many of the Israelites withdrew and his hand was stuck to the sword. Verse 11, Shema defeated Philistines when the Israelite soldiers withdrew. Verse 18, Abishai killed 300 men with a spear. Verse 20, Benaiah struck down a lot of men. But in this episode, we aren't told those sort of details. Why? Or why not? We're not told those things because the point which highlights the value of these mighty men is not, look how many people they could kill, look how strong they were, look how skilled they were. The point is this, look at how devoted they were to David. Look at how devoted they are. It doesn't matter how much, if they killed anybody or not, they broke through this and they came back just because David did what? He just sighed. <laughs> he just longed for something. That's how devoted they were to him. In fact, if you look at verse 15, we're told David longingly wished he could have some water from Bethlehem to encourage his heart. Verse 16, the very next verse, the three men go and do it. There's no command. It's just immediately, right after we hear of David's longing to have some water, they are, oh, he longs for this. In fact, we're given to understand that he didn't even speak it to them. It might have been something he was just saying to himself, like huh, sitting by himself in the corner. You know, I really wish, Lord, that I could just 
go have a little bit of water. I wish we had that kind of freedom right now. I wish the Philistines weren't fighting against us and I could just go have some well from my hometown. It would taste familiar, it would taste awesome. That would be great. They overheard it and they went. But again, notice the absence, the complete absence of any command from David. There is no command for them to do this. This is a longing of David. And they picked up on the longing and without any command, they just went and did it, which highlights how much they love David. They're devoted to him. They love him. They want to please him. I want to consider something here for just a minute. This is kind of fast forwarding a few thousand years to 2023 Pella, Iowa. Pella is a town built on following rules. If you come from the outside, you'll see this fairly clearly. A lot of places are built on lawlessness. Pella is a town built on rules, has a huge uh, church background um, as its history, Dutch reform background in particular. But if you live in Pella, if you learn the rules, you know the rules of being a good Christian and you keep them, then you're doing well in Pella. That's the expectation of Pella, Iowa. And again, I'm speaking in generalizations. Consequently, there are a lot of people who are really good at following rules and laws and who then serve Jesus out of mere duty, which can quickly become begrudging, unwilling obedience. And if we operate our hearts and minds in this mode, the joy of our salvation is sucked right out of the air. I want to ask this question for you. I am asking myself as well. Would your service to the Lord Jesus Christ, would mine, be best described as obeying orders, doing what he commands, only because you have to and because he requires it, the mere fulfilling of a duty? Or would your service to Christ be described as obedience motivated by love? Obedience set on fire by heartfelt love and devotion for Jesus. We might not think it's a big deal to merely obey out of duty. Lacking love and obeying out of mere duty is certainly better than disobedience. I want to make that clear, right? If that's all we have, if our love for the Lord has grown cold, that doesn't mean we disobey. Then we obey merely out of duty, and we should. And that's good and right, and I want to highlight that. But in this passage, what is highlighted for us is simply that these men got no command. They just heard David's longing. They just heard his heart talking, as it were. And they went out and they did it. At the risk of their lives, they were that devoted to King David. To the church in Ephesus, the Lord Jesus called them to repentance with these words, Revelation 2, 4, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Obedience motivated, motivated by love is a big deal to our Lord Jesus Christ, beloved. Paul in 1 Corinthians 16, 14 says, let all be done in love. In other words, all that we do, let it be motivated by love. Let love be our guide. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Beloved, that's, that's not just a duty. That's a heart that is motivated by love to serve the Lord. Now, David noticed this. David saw their devotion. He maybe couldn't believe that a simple sigh, a simple expression of longing would be all his men needed to go satisfy the longing of his heart. But in any case, he immediately counted himself unworthy to partake of such a great sacrifice. If you look at verse 17, we're told David would not drink of it. So they they go fight these Philistines. They come back with this water from the well at Bethlehem, and he won't even drink it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. He poured it out as a drink offering to the Lord. If David had been thirsty, he would have either drank in the water or shared it with his men. 
But again, the water wasn't the point. It's not like they were starving. We're not even told the men were upset at him, which likely they would have been if they were all dying of thirst. <laughs> they wouldn't rest this. We're not told that the men who were dying of thirst stopped at the well of Bethlehem and they drank a gallon of water each because they're so thirsty. Now, David, the point was he just wanted life to be back to normal. He got a cup, a reminder from these men of how devoted they are to him. And he poured it out as a drink offering to the Lord. Notice he didn't just pour it out. He said he poured it out to the Lord. Did you catch that? He poured it out to the Lord. David's saying what they did is an act of worship. And David knew that he was not worthy of such devotion. He knows I'm a mere human being. The Lord alone is worthy of that kind of devotion. I want to close with the mighty man who conquered to satisfy our desire to be home. Now, every one of us as believers longs to be home with God. And Jesus Christ has heard the longing of our hearts to be back home. He knows that we want to be with him, to be in heaven, to be in a place of peace and order and righteousness, a place where we have an eternal home. And he himself has set in motion everything necessary to bring us home. Uh, Ed Clowney sort of helped frame this uh, passage uh, for me and for a lot of people. He wrote, Jesus is the anointed warrior who breaks through the hosts of darkness to bring us water from Bethlehem. So in this passage, the mighty men are the focal point. And indeed, there are things for us as believers to learn. But as you watch them, they're a portrait of the Lord Jesus Christ and of his work on our behalf. What has Jesus done to take me home, to give me peace, to secure my well-being? What has he done? He's done this. The day before Jesus went to the cross in John 14, he said that he's going to go prepare a place not only for his disciples, but for all of his people in the Father's mansion, a room. I like to think of it as a room with your name on it. Whatever the case, if there's no name on it, it doesn't matter. There's still a room for us in the Father's mansion. Jesus has promised that he's going to go do that. That's what he's doing right now. He's preparing a place for us. Well, Later that day, after he made that promise that he's going to go prepare a place for us, he stormed the town of Bethlehem, but he didn't storm it with a sword. He stormed it with weakness, went right through the garrison with the crucifixion, with coming under the judgment for sin. He broke through the enemy lines of Satan, of sin and death, and he emerged to provide us the longing of each of our hearts. And that longing is himself. Jesus is the way back. He's the home. He's the home we have now. And he's the one we'll be at home with when we get to heaven. You know, there are some similarities that I want to highlight here between the mighty men and Jesus. The mighty men were willing warriors, willingly devoted to the well-being of David. Jesus Christ, as well, is a willing Savior. He did not go to the cross merely because he had to. He went because he wanted to. In fact, he said in John 10, 18, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Oh, that's tremendous, beloved. We have a willing Savior. We don't have a Savior who just lost some sort of arm wrestling match, or however you want to put this uh, reverently. We have a Savior who said, sign me up. The Father's decree is to go and save. Jesus says, I'm in. We're doing this. I want to go and save these people at the cost of my life. David knew he was unworthy of the devotion of his men, secondly. And similarly, every believer is unworthy of the love of God toward us in Jesus Christ. What mere sinful being, what mere sinful human being is worthy to have a sinless divine Savior die for them? Who of us is worthy to partake of this incredible sacrifice? Who, if you were just doing the simple math and looking at values, who would say that a, a being of infinite value 
is, is ought to die for people who had become worthless. None of us would say that adds up. And yet that's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. David knew he was unworthy of the devotion of his men, which is why he poured it out to the Lord. And all of us are going to keenly realize as well that I'm not worthy to be saved. God didn't save me because I was some great person. I'm actually not worthy to be saved. I'm, I'm worthy to have death. The wages of my sin is death. So this is an incredible sacrifice that Jesus has offered me. A third similarity, David didn't merely pour out the water on the ground. We are told he poured it out to the Lord, verse 17. He saw that their devotion was bigger than love toward him. Their love and sacrifice was toward the Lord. And similarly, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is bigger than merely taking us home to heaven. Jesus' work is to the glory of God. Ephesians 1, 4-5. In love, God predestined us for, the, for adoption uh, to, to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Why did God save us, adopt us in love? So he could be praised to the praise of his glorious grace. In Isaiah 43, 25, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Why does God forgive us for his own sake, for his own glory? Tremendous. But there are some differences that I want to highlight, and then we'll close. The mighty men risked their lives to get David that water. They didn't die. But Jesus didn't merely risk his life. He came to give it. He knew he was going to come and give his life, and he died. The water of Bethlehem to David was a small source of comfort and peace in the difficult circumstance. But the room for us in the Father's mansion is the ultimate comfort for believers as we walk through this life. The mighty men breaking through the Philistines to get the water meant that overtaking Bethlehem and regaining Jerusalem was possible. It provided a ray of hope for David too. Like, oh, I just want to be back there. The mighty men break their way through, come back. It provides a ray of hope. Wow, we can maybe pull this off. But the work of Jesus Christ on the cross doesn't make heaven possible for believers. It actually guarantees it. And the hope we have of getting to heaven is not a mere possibility. It's a guarantee. It's a sure thing, beloved. You and I, through Jesus Christ, we're getting there. We're going to be there one day. And one more difference. David poured out the water as an act of great worship. But believers are called to drink Christ's blood and eat his, eat his flesh as the greatest act of worship taking him down to the depths of our souls. This is most pleasing to God, which is why Jesus can say in John 6, if you won't drink my blood, if you won't eat my flesh, you have no life in you, which is partake of me, have a relationship with me, intimately come into relationship with me, believe and follow. I want to close with this. First of all, to any who don't know the Lord, Jesus is the only one strong enough, devoted enough, and loving enough to bring you home to heaven and to release the grip that Satan has on you, the grip that sin has on you. He's the only one powerful enough. He's defeated death and sin and the devil at the cross. And this day he offers you to drink of his work. You are not worthy of salvation and neither am I and neither is any human being on the planet. But it is freely offered to you by a willing savior. And I encourage you to drink of him, to believe in him. For those of us believers, three things quickly. We have a great Savior beyond question. Let your heart soak in his great love for you. It's life-changing. He's devoted to you. He came into this world having counted the cost. He knew what it would take. He is unconditionally devoted to not only forgiving your sins, but taking you to heaven and giving you and I hope while we wait.
This is love like the world has never seen before. Second thing I want to mention is let Jesus' devoted, willing love for you transform your heart toward him. Let our duty be done in love, right? So this, if we have a Savior who's willing, that transforms our hearts, beloved, so that we no longer obey him. I, Lord, I guess I have to. But this will make our hearts say, Lord, I, I guess it's my greatest privilege to do this, to serve you, and I want to now. John Newton, our pleasure, our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. It's often the case, beloved, that pleasure, joy, is separated from duty. And what he's saying is that when we see the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we see that he's the greater mighty man, the one who comes willingly because we want to be in a place where there's peace, where there's wonderfulness, when we see that he did that willingly, that, that transforms our duty from merely a duty actually into something we want to do. Lord Jesus, I see what you've done for me. I'm in. Put me in. And then finally, will we then go and serve him, risking our very life to see the gospel brought to the nations, to grow in holiness, and to love and serve each other and our neighbors? You know, Jesus, it's been often said, Jesus is looking for people who are willing to die. He's not looking for people who are willing to just give him a few minutes during the day, maybe a few hours, maybe for the really sanctified, he'll, he'll have like 48 hours during the week. He's not looking for that. He's looking for people like these mighty men who are willing to understand the heart of our Savior, his heart for the nations, his heart for our growth in Christ, his heart for our building each other up and serving one another and loving our neighbor. He's looking for people who are willing to hear that heart and see that in Scripture and just say, I don't care the cost, Lord, I'm ready to go. Now, for most of us, this won't cost us our lives. Are we willing to? Are we willing to risk things like these mighty men did to go serve our Savior no matter what the call is. Let's pray.